This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be on Diane Downs. So, let's start at the beginning. Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson was born on August 7, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. So, let's get into some history for that time. This year, we see the first operational nuclear-powered submarine launched, called the USS Nautilus. It continued operating until it was decommissioned in March of 1980, and during its time, it broke an impressive amount of submarine records, completing several important research and naval missions. Also this year, Jonas Salk's polio vaccine was determined to be safe for humans and was highly effective in preventing polio. Trials had begun the year before. In the Middle East, the Central Treaty Organization, or CENTO, was formed after the Baghdad Pact was agreed upon by Turkey, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and the UK. Its purpose was to create a structure very much like NATO in which the participating countries would agree to protect one another, cooperate for the sake of trade and military issues, and to also not interfere with each other's affairs. This was, of course, unsuccessful. In the UK, the first Guinness Book of World Records was published. The US version was not released until the next year. This is the year that the U.S. finally became involved in the Vietnam Conflict or Second Indochina War by sending troops to help train the South Vietnamese military after France left. In 1955, West Germany joined NATO. Juan Perón in Argentina was forced to leave after the military seized control. Ruth Ellis was the last woman in England to be executed by hanging. The first McDonald's fast food restaurant chain was started. The first riot at an Elvis Presley concert happened in Jacksonville, Florida. James Dean starred in the movie East of Eden, then later died in a car crash the same year. The Mickey Mouse Club also debuted this year. And lastly, some other notable people born this year are Whoopi Goldberg, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates. So this was the atmosphere that Diane was born into. Her parents were Wes Fredrickson and Willadine Engel. Wesley Fredrickson was born in 1930 in Phoenix, Arizona. His family was Danish and English. He joined the military, he served his country in the U.S. Army, and it is said that he received many honors and medals. Willadine Engel was born in 1937, but I couldn't find where. 
Now, Wes and Willadine married in April of 1954. Diane was born the next year, her mother being just 18 and her father 25. Diane also had two younger brothers and one younger sister. The family moved around a bit until Wes obtained stable employment with the U.S. Postal Service in Springfield, Oregon. The family settled in Springfield, which is a twin city to Eugene, when Diane was about 11 years old. Her parents were fairly strict and conservative, but not beyond what was considered normal for the times. The children were very well cared for. There were no reports of neglect or abuse witnessed by anyone else in the home or any former neighbors, nothing. However, according to Diane, her father was domineering over the children and especially her mother and that both parents didn't really pay any attention to her. She says when she was 12 years old, her father sexually abused her and at 13, she attempted suicide by cutting her wrists. But due to the fact that the family moved around a few times, she struggled to make friends and fit in. As soon as she would get, you know, comfortable with her surroundings and the kids at the school, they would move. So, once they landed in Springfield, Diane realized that she just wasn't going to be that popular girl that she so wanted to be. When she was 14 years old, sources say she decided things would be different. First, she stopped going by her actual first name, Elizabeth, and demanded to be referred to as Diane, which was her middle name. She cut off her long hair, wearing a much more, at that time, trendy shortcut and bleached it blonde. She also began wearing the stylish and much more revealing clothing of the late 1960s. But the biggest defiance, at least in her parents' eyes, was when she began dating the boy who lived across the street, 16-year-old Stephen Downs. They did not approve of the relationship, but that hardly stopped her from sneaking out or doing whatever she could to be able to see Stephen. Needless to say, the relationship got sexual fairly quickly. As Stephen graduated from high school, he announced that he was going to join the Navy. He and Diane promised to remain faithful to each other in their absence until they could be rejoined. So Stephen joined the Navy while Diane completed high school, then enrolled, or at least her parents made her enroll, at Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. And that was Diane's childhood. There's not a lot to go on, but there is some. While I didn't find much of any background information on Diane's family history, I certainly didn't come across anything that would indicate either of her parents came from less than acceptable families. Her father was a decorated military man who went on to work for the post office as a mail carrier, which I think would be an interesting job. I have to assume her mother was a homemaker as I couldn't find anything indicating otherwise. Now, I find it unwise to blame parents who are doing the best they can to provide for their families for having to move around a lot. But studies have shown that repeated relocations in childhood are related to poorer well-being in adulthood, 
especially people who are more introverted or neurotic. They generally perform a little more poorly in school and have more behavioral problems in the short term, but this also affects them in adulthood. Researchers have found that the more times people moved as children, the more likely they were to report lower life satisfaction and psychological well-being at the time they were surveyed, even when controlling for age, gender, and education level. The research also showed that those who moved frequently as children had fewer quality social relationships as adults. The findings showed neurotic people who moved frequently reported less life satisfaction and poorer psychological well-being than people who did not move as much and people who were not neurotic. Neuroticism was defined for this study as being moody, nervous, and high-strung. However, the number and quality of neurotic people's relationships had no effect on their well-being, no matter how often they moved as children. In this article, Oishi speculates this may be because neurotic people have more negative reactions to stressful life events in general. Now, Diane would later say that her father did sexually assault her when she was 12 years old, which her father steadfastly denied, and then she later recanted that and said that he didn't. So if he didn't, why bring it up in the story? Glad you asked. It will pertain to the story later. Now, as she began to go through puberty, her body maturing the way a young teenager's body does, riding the hormonal roller coaster as everyone experiences, Diane did what some teens do. She became rebellious against her parents' old-fashioned beliefs. She cut her hair. She wore clothing that was more revealing than her parents approved of. It was the late 60s. There was a lot of this going on. Some sources say she was, quote, boy crazy, that she absolutely loved getting attention from boys, but she attached herself to young Stephen Downs, the boy across the street, and decided he was the one for her. Still quite typical for a teenage girl, really. Now, the part about how she felt her parents didn't pay attention to her is at least something to consider. Children who are otherwise getting all of their needs met but feel as if their parents aren't paying enough attention to them might begin to act out, participating in undesirable behaviors to get that parent's attention. We very well might be seeing this in Diane's behavior once she gets into her teens. Then the parents have negatively reinforced that behavior, which spurs her to continue to display the undesirable behavior. But she could also just be one of those children who demands more attention than what is normal and can be pretty taxing on the parents. Since she later admitted the abuse allegations were untrue, I'm just not seeing anything disturbing in her past. No real neglect or abuse. There was no evidence of physical injury or head trauma, no dangerous illnesses, nothing really to indicate anything was much out of the ordinary in Diane's childhood. So let's continue. In college now, a Baptist college, mind you, Diane just wasn't able to keep her promise to Stephen as evidenced in her expulsion for promiscuity. Now for those in other countries not familiar with that, 
Promiscuity is the practice of engaging in sexual activity frequently with different partners. Back then, it was heavily frowned upon. She had only been in college a year, had to tuck tail, and return to her parents' home. In November 1973, at 18 years old, Diane Fredrickson married Stephen Downs once he returned from the Navy. Needless to say, the marriage was rough from the beginning. An article in the Washington Post stated that Steve was a farmhand, then later an electrician. Diane was quoted as saying, quote, I suppose I potentially thought he could be a miniature of my dad. I did not marry Steve for love. I married Steve to get out of the family, unquote. It was true that her parents weren't fond of Steve either. But once she was married, she immediately wanted to begin having children. When she was later asked about wanting a child rather than her husband, she responded by saying, quote, that explains it pretty well, unquote. She and Stephen would fight and she would run back to her parents' house. Then they'd make up and she'd go back to Stephen. There was a bit of back and forth, however, their first daughter, Christy, was born the next year in 1974. Sources did vary a bit, but it was widely mentioned that Diane joined the Navy herself when Christy was about six months old, but returned after only being gone for three weeks due to severe blisters. But then she later said the real reason she left was because she felt Stephen was neglecting Christy. Diane would later go on to say that Christy was the, quote, first good friend, unquote, she ever had. She said, quote, Christy was the first person that really, really just plain loved me, unquote. And also, Diane really liked being pregnant. And in 1975, she gave birth to their second daughter, Cheryl Lynn. This baby was apparently colicky, and this would mean that the baby would be chronically fussy, often crying for hours. Experts say colic isn't a disease or a diagnosis, but rather a combination of baffling behaviors. It's kind of a catch-all term for excessive crying in healthy babies. So, of course, this put a heavy strain on the already less-than-happy marriage. Again, Diane ran from Stephen to her parents and back over and over. The Salem News wrote that Steve would win her back by being charming. After the two daughters, Stephen got a vasectomy. He didn't want to have any more children. Not letting that stop her, she slept with a male friend of hers and got pregnant again. But she decided to get an abortion and named the aborted fetus Carrie. In 1978, the couple and their two daughters moved down to Mesa, Arizona, where they both worked in a mobile home manufacturing company. While there, Diane began having affairs and became pregnant again. Of course, she got pregnant on purpose, later saying she was trying to replace the baby that she felt she had, quote, killed. Stephen was furious, but he actually calmed down and accepted the upcoming baby as his own. In 1979, Stephen Daniel, or Danny, Downs was born and Stephen loved him as his own, knowing he was not the biological father. In 
But in 1980, the couple decided to divorce. They had been fighting constantly, and Diane would herself admit that she had been screaming at her own children, which apparently worried her enough to write a short essay about child abuse while attending an Arizona community college part-time. She read that essay later in court, which I will share when that time comes. She then went on to have more affairs with multiple men, some married, some not, and sometimes she would try to reconcile with Steve, but he would have no part of it. She also began working full-time for the post office in Chandler, Arizona. But she still very much loved being pregnant, so she advertised herself to be a surrogate mother. Now, here is where sources differ. Many don't say anything about this, but others do, so I thought it would be interesting enough to bring up. Allegedly, when she applied to be a surrogate mother, she had to pass a psychiatric exam. I mean, yes, we want that, please, but she failed not one, but two of them. One of the tests determined that, while she was quite intelligent, she was psychotic, which apparently she found quite humorous and would joke about it with her acquaintances. This would mean that she was found to be out of touch with reality. She had difficulty concentrating, anxiety, suspiciousness, delusions, withdrawal from family and friends, and so on. Diane then struck up a relationship with a married man by the name of Robert Knickerbocker. While she worked, she left the children with either babysitters, with her ex-husband Stephen, or with Danny's biological father. Now, neighbors reported that the children were not being well cared for, not being dressed properly according to weather conditions, and sometimes asked people for food. It was reported that if she had no one to babysit, well, then she left her six-year-old daughter alone to watch the younger siblings. But then, somehow, she was finally accepted into the surrogate mother program, and she later said, quote, I was so happy. It was the most stable time in my whole life. I had a purpose for being here, and that's been my whole hang-up since I was just a little kid. Why am I here? Just so my dad can yell at me, so my husband can criticize me, just to take care of my kids. But these people needed me. It made me somebody. I told the parents that the baby did more for me than I ever did for them. Unquote. Now she gave birth to the baby, gave it to the parents, and she was paid $10,000. She fell back into old habits of sleeping with many of the men that she worked with, but stated that Robert Knickerbocker was her favorite. I love that last name. Their relationship was described as all-consuming, even though he was married. Diane desperately wanted him to leave his wife, and she hounded him about it. Finally, he had had enough, and he ended their relationship. She was, of course, devastated. Diane moved back to Oregon, but couldn't quite let go of Robert. Some sources say he promised to follow her there, but did not. She even allegedly visited him once, but he rejected her completely, stating he had zero interest in being a father to her children. 
Diane wrote letter after letter proclaiming her love for him. In her own diary, she wrote things like, on April 21st, 1983, quote, I still think of you as my best friend and lover, and you keep telling me to go away and find someone else, unquote. Or eight days after that, she wrote, quote, It doesn't matter what Charlene says. I'm a little sad that she has convinced you that the kids would be a burden because I know it would not be true, unquote. On May 8th, she wrote a letter to the baby she gave up after surrogacy named Jennifer, saying, quote, Hello, baby. How is your life? I think about you often and wonder what goes on with you week by week. Did you know that today is Mother's Day as well as your birthday? You and your mommy must really be having a big celebration. I don't know exactly what to say to you, Jenny, so I'll say what's on my mind. Don't give yourself and your love to anyone unless you are sure they are worthy and when the heartbreak comes, don't try to chase it away. It can't be done. Accept the pain and learn from it. A wonderful man once told me that if something was worth waiting for, then wait for it. I believe him, my love, and you should too. Goodbye, Jennifer. I love you. Unquote. On May 11th, 1983, she wrote in her diary, quote, I have three beautiful children that I love more than anyone else. I think I love them even more than you now. Danny says he's my best buddy, and I'm his best buddy. He always gives me kisses and hugs. Every morning when I go to work, he waves and says, Bye, Mom. Pick me up after work. I love you. Unquote. Her last journal entry was May 17th, 1983. Then, two days later, Diane's statement was that on the evening of Thursday, May 19th, 1983, she took her three children, put them in her car, and went to visit a friend who had a horse. She then decided to go for a drive on Old Mohawk Road. She stated the kids fell asleep in the car and she decided to go home. She then maintains that a, quote, shaggy-haired stranger flagged her down, so she decided to stop. She got out of the car and then the man demanded that she give him her car. She stated that she laughed at him and said, quote, you've got to be kidding me, unquote. She maintained that he leaned into her car, we have to assume her windows were down, and began shooting her children. She states that the surprise and shock turned into fear. He was then standing back over her, and they struggled. The gun went off, shooting her in the left forearm. The man then allegedly fell back. She jumped into her car, and she raced to the hospital to save her children. When she arrived at the hospital, as medical staff rushed around to begin trying to save her children's lives, they all testified to the fact that her demeanor was mm, off. It was observed that she was too calm for a person who had just experienced such an event. They reported that she was not crying, not angry, that she was even smiling and chuckling. Diane's mother, though, stated that her daughter was hysterical that night and was crying when she met up with her at the hospital. 
Once the children were rushed off to be worked on, to be saved, her very next thought, though, was to call Robert Knickerbocker of all people. When a doctor informed her that the bullet that hit her youngest child, little four-year-old Danny, in his spine, and it didn't actually hit his heart, he said that she acted surprised. He was in very serious condition, but survived and was paralyzed from the waist down. Now, I look to see if he's okay today. From what I see, he's partially to mostly paralyzed, but he's doing great. Cheryl, unfortunately, died from her injuries. As far as her eldest child and daughter Christie's condition, her surgeon was interviewed. He said, quote, When I looked at Christie, I thought she was dead. Her pupils were dilated. Her blood pressure was non-existent or very low. She was white. She was not breathing. I mean, she is so close to death, it's unbelievable. Unquote. And although the then nine-year-old suffered a stroke and was left unable to speak for a while, she too survived and she grew up to have a family and she's doing great as well. So the police went to investigate Diane's story, of course, though she stated the perpetrator had shot her in the arm just outside of her car. The blood splatter pattern on the outside of the car did not match up with her statement. There was also no gunpowder residue on the outside of the car either where she said she had been standing. She failed to admit that she owned a 22 caliber handgun, the same kind that was used to shoot her children. And Robert stated he had in fact seen that gun in the trunk of her car as she left Arizona to move to Oregon. As the investigation continued, a man actually stepped forward stating he was driving that night and had caught up to her as she was driving and that she was driving unbelievably slow. He was forced to pass her, which contradicted what she said that she had raced to the hospital. As the months passed by, Christy, again mute from the stroke she had suffered, would become stressed when her mother came to visit her. It was said that her vital signs would spike and she would show signals of fear. When she was finally able to talk, she told investigators what had really happened. Christy said that her mother stopped the car, got out, went to the back to retrieve something out of the trunk, shut the trunk, walked around, pointed the gun at them, and began to shoot. She said, quote, I watched her. My mom did it, unquote. Christy said Diane shot Cheryl, then leaned over the back seat of the car and shot her and Danny. So after this, now keep in mind that this grieving mother, whose middle child had been murdered, and the other two near gravely injured, busied herself from the stress, you know, by dating. She found another man and became pregnant again fairly quickly. Not long after, she was arrested and charged with murder, attempted murder, and assault. As the trial went on, as her pregnant belly got bigger and bigger, her story changed a few times to that there were two masked men who attacked them and on and on. 
She also said her ex-husband had hired a hitman. The defense tried to say that Christy was coerced into saying her mother shot them, but Christy insisted that that was not true, that her own mother had shot them. It's true that Diane had had no gunpowder residue on her hands and a couple of other minor details. The prosecution stated she wanted her children out of the way so she could be free to be with Robert. The prosecution also pointed out that the forensic evidence simply did not match her story. Now, remember the essay she wrote back when she was going to community college? Well, she read it to the court. She said, quote, When these abused children grow up, they will no doubt abuse their own children. Generation after generation, the abuse continues, unquote. She then looked at Hughie, the prosecutor. She said, quote, do you understand, Mr. Hughie, that you can stop the cycle? I stopped, unquote. The prosecutor then said, quote, your method of stopping the cycle was to eliminate a generation, unquote. No, she said with apparent anger, I did not. They never found the gun, but they found unfired casings in her home with markings that matched the ones used in the crime. The other driver that passed her testified that she was only going about five to seven miles an hour. On June 17, 1984, Diane Downs was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. She has been diagnosed with narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. So most of us are quite familiar with narcissistic personality disorder, right? So it includes a grandiose sense of self-importance, lives in a fantasy world that supports their delusions of grandeur, they need constant praise and admiration, they feel entitled, exploit others without guilt or shame, and demeans or bullies others. Most of us are also familiar with antisocial personality disorder, which looks like deceitfulness, hostility, irresponsibility, manipulativeness, risky behaviors, aggression, lack of impulse, lack of restraint, lack of empathy, and so on. Histrionic personality disorder kind of shows as a person whose self-esteem is dependent upon the approval of others. They have an overwhelming need to be noticed and often behave quite dramatically and or inappropriately to get attention. The judge, quote, made it clear that he did not intend for Downs to ever be free again, unquote. Now, you can find interviews with her on YouTube where her demeanor is definitely off, and I've actually linked a video to most of her interviews in the podcast notes if you'd like to go watch. They are interesting to say the least. She chuckles, acts like she enjoys all of the attention, loves the cameras. A month after her trial, she gave birth to a baby girl, Rebecca, who was adopted out and actually interviews with her can be easily found too. I recommend watching. Rebecca actually received letters from Diane that are quite disturbing. The surviving children were actually adopted by the prosecutor and his wife and like I said, they grew up to have good lives. Diane is still in prison. 
She did scale a fence and escape for a short time, but was reapprehended. There are a few that believe her conviction is a conspiracy and that there were other things going on that can prove her innocence. Now, I don't have time to get into all of that, but if you believe that she might have been wrongly convicted, there's plenty of info out there to read. So, tell me what you think. Hit the like and subscribe buttons if you're on YouTube. Consider becoming a sponsor, and thank you so much for listening. I'm working on transcripts for each podcast, which will be published on my website at SerialKilling.Squarespace.com. I'll tell everyone once that has been completed, okay? So you guys have a great day.